a woman came up to me and said, I'd like to poison your mind with wrong ideas that appeal to you, though I am not unkind. She looked at me, I looked at something written across her scalp, and these are the words that it faintly said as I tried to embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist, you are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 144 of Embrace the Void, where we put the dis in dystopia. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got another discussion in our postmodern culture war series, only with a fun twist. This time it's on the right. So, let's get radically subjective. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something... My guest this week is Matt McManus, a professor of politics and international relations at TEC de, de, uh, excuse me, de Monterey, um, and author of Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson and the rise of postmodern conservatism. Matt, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, it's nice to hear. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. No, yeah, welcome to The Void. We love uh, chatting about all things postmodernism. So before we get to that, how would you say that you self-identify politically and philosophically in the, you know, also important um, political map? Uh, well, politically, I usually identify um, broadly as a liberal socialist um, or sometimes as a deliberative Democrat with uh, socialist leanings. Uh, so broadly in the tradition of people... <laughs> like John Rawls or Jurgen Habermas, uh, or if you want somebody uh, who's a little bit more, you know, <laughs> uh, well-known, somebody like Willy Brandt in Germany. Mm-hmm. So kind of moderate, liberal, social, Democrat-ish territory? I, I wouldn't quite say moderate, right? I believe that okay. what we should be gradually moving towards is worker ownership uh, of the means of production. But I think that that's best attained by moving from social democracy uh, to greater worker ownership, rather than necessarily trying to obtain that through revolutionary uh, policies. Uh, and the reason I'm pulled to that is because I think ultimately you need uh, to create the kind of institutions that will eventually abet worker control. Uh, you can't just necessarily overthrow the existing system and then try to construct them from scratch without there being serious problems that arise. Uh, and philosophically, like I come from a number of different traditions, um, you know, epistemologically, I tend to align myself sometimes with what's called cognitive pragmatism, um, which, you know, has a variable contradiction going back to people like Charles Sanders Peirce. Um, but I also draw a lot um, from a variety of different traditions, critical theory, a lot of people like Theodore Adorno or Max Horkheimer, um, obviously the deliberative Democrat tradition of uh, people like Jürgen Habermas or Sayla Benabee, uh, and what's sometimes called liberal egalitarianism. Uh, a la mm-hmm. people like Amartya Sen, Martha Nussbaum, uh, or John Rawls. 
Okay. I think that's a pretty reasonable picture. So what are the, what are the questions that are of particular importance to you philosophically? And like, what are you trying to, other than like slowly incrementally seizing the means of production? Um, what other kinds of uh, substantial change would you like to see philosophically in the world? Well, there are kind of two prongs to my work, right? One is arguing for a cosmopolitan iteration of liberal socialism uh, and trying to think about how we can achieve that uh, both conceptually um, in theory uh, and in practice, right? Uh, and there's a number of different pieces that I published uh, in this vein. Uh, probably the most substantial is my first book, um, Making Human Dignity Central to International Human Rights Law, A Critical Legal Argument. Uh, and then I have a forthcoming book coming out hmm. in a few months with Paul Gray McMillan, Liberalism and Liberal Rights, A Critical Legal Argument, that I'll be sketching out my argument uh, for cosmopolitan liberal socialism in a lot more detail. The other prong of my work uh, is, of course, a criticism of reactionary politics in a postmodern epoch, uh, particularly in its nationalist and ethnocentric iterations. Um, but hmm. there's a lot of different dimensions to that. And it's the kind of more dark and, I suppose you could say, um, almost perturbing element of my work. <laughs> and yet seems like the most relevant to our current situation. Yeah, um, though I, I, I am curious, um, how do you define in your work human dignity and, and how do you see that play out? And like, does it, does it allow for ethical distinctions between things like humans and non-human animals? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, one of the things that um, I argue uh, is that, human dignity shouldn't be understood as an intrinsic status uh, that people possess just by virtue of being human. Uh, and the reason I argue this is that all too often, human dignity is appealed to as a way of talking about how, how everyone has worth. So you don't need to actually engage in any kinds of meaningful social changes uh, because everyone's already respected under the law. Uh, what I argue is that our societies are, have a lot to do before we actually enable people to live lives of what I call dignified self-authorship. Uh, they need to democratize considerably more to allow people to be the authors of the laws that govern them. Uh, and they need to engage in a far more robust effort to redistribute wealth and honors uh, in a way that would be amenable to our princi basic principles of fairness and equity. Mm -hmm. I'm generally on board with pretty much everything you're saying here. I, I mean, like, I think you and I are in a very similar mindset um, politically and philosophically on a lot of these fronts. Um, but I just think it's useful to get these uh, these kind of priors out there before we both get into discussing politics that is sort of not our personal central perspective, but are things that we've both, I think, been interested in and have been talking about, especially as in their role in the um, cultural, uh, the culture wars that are constantly raging across Twitter. So I think that's I, great. Um, is there I anything else agree. that... Is there anything else that you feel like you want to add in terms of, like, if you wanted to disclose any of your your biases or associations before we press on into uh, postmodernism and uh, Petersonianism? No. Well, I mean, one of the things that I want to say is that uh, I spent an awful lot of my time talking about and writing about and reading conservatives. Uh, and I should say that there are some points where I actually am sympathetic to various conservative arguments, uh, particularly okay. people like Patrick Dineen uh, with his argument about how it is that under systems of neoliberal governance, uh, he doesn't use the term, but I'm kind of inferring it, uh, we've seen the kind of collapse of a sense of meaning that many people relied on in life and we need to restore that. Um, mm -hmm. So what I'm talking about when I discuss postmodern conservatism, 
uh, isn't these more robust and interesting iterations of conservatism, but rather a kind of social reaction uh, to a very unfortunate cultural condition that we're all inhabiting. Uh, and I don't think it has nearly the depths uh, or the kind of insight uh, that conservatism is best uh, at its best can offer us. Uh, okay. I, say, I always do try my, to take to whatever author I'm criticizing as seriously and as, uh, as impartially uh, as possible. Sometimes a little difficult when they don't necessarily return the favor uh, to their own mm -hmm. opponents, uh, which I would say Jordan Peterson, for example, does a lot. But I do try my best. Uh, whether I succeed or not is really up to readers. I think that's appropriate. And I agree that uh, an existential crisis emerges as you replace, you know, all of the essentialisms of the old world with um, a lot of open questions and science and um, the absence of God and things like that. I just think that um, I think we probably tend to agree that there are better ways to sort of re refound meaning in our lives than sort of collapsing back into um, whatever kind of religion someone like Peterson is necessarily putting forward. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I always say is these people are always talking about the need for a return uh, to something that was lost. Uh, what's mm -hmm. never really addressed all that comprehensively is why people deviated from these traditions and structures of thought in the first place. If they were right. really all that meaningful and all that stable, uh, people wouldn't have chosen to flee from them en masse uh, over a long period of time. So whatever it is that we're going to replace postmodern modernity uh, and neoliberalism with, it's got to be better than what came before. It can't be just a return uh, to some nostalgic image of the past. Yeah, you can't uh, ignore that Like there was a lot of felt suffering that led to these reforms in the first place, and that generally speaking, most of us consider the past 200 years to be a time of progress, where progress means not inflicting certain um, conservative traditions on everybody writ large. Yeah, um, exactly. So. And I mean, some conservative authors are cognizant of that. Again, uh, Patrick Deneen, who I think is probably the greatest conservative author is sensitive to this question, but not in a way that I think is really all that insightful. Mm -hmm. uh, he kind of says we need to return to a more traditional communitarian way of life, but we want to keep the achievements of progressivism, like its toleration for sexual difference. We want to keep its toleration of racial minorities. We want to keep its toleration uh, of more emancipated gender norms and so on. And you kind of sit there thinking to yourself, well, in what sense then is this a return if we're basically keeping everything uh, that's happened over the past 200 years. Uh, what exactly are we trying to get away from, right? Yeah. Well, it's like it's like uh, focus on the family, but we allow gay people in the family now. Like, that's the yeah, exactly. the return. Um, and I'm like, in a sense, I, I'm sympathetic to that. I think there are a lot of folks in the secular communities who want that feeling of family and small, tight-knit community um, to counterbalance their felt need for, like, large-scale social change in an impersonal kind of way um and i think you know i just think that we can we can manage to accomplish that um more effectively uh but let's talk some about the big one of the big philosophical um elephants in the room in these discussions which is this idea of postmodernism. so like you've been already, you've already sort of been talking a little bit about conservative postmodernism, but i think it's difficult to understand that concept without first understanding why what postmodernism is and why it is traditionally speaking a a liberal leaning or left-leaning um ideology so how do you define postmodernism? what does that concept mean to you 
Yeah, well, th there's two ways that I typically describe postmodernity, right? Uh, one is as a kind of theoretical orientation or an aesthetic orientation sometimes uh, that became popular starting in the 1950s, really came to the fore uh, in the 1960s, uh, and has kind of seen its heyday come and go in some respects, uh, at least according to me. Uh, and <laughs> the kind of theoretical and aesthetic position uh, that was taken by various proponents of postmodernism in this sense was that we should be skeptical of grand universalistic narratives, uh, or as Jean-Paul Lyotard once put it, meta-narratives, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that there are useful things uh, that postmodern theory and aesthetics contributed, uh, much like all iterations of skepticism usually have something useful to teach us about the limits uh, of our ideological and philosophical understanding. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. personally align with this theoretical tradition, and there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, and I think, again, this heyday has kind of come and gone. Um, really, a lot of people on the left now are abandoning uh, postmodernism, embracing things like Zizekian ideological critique, um, or you know what I sometimes call millennial socialism, more politically. Um, what would but, you say is the main difference there? Like um, that, that one you just dropped there, I think is probably not going to be familiar to, I, not, not one that I'm even familiar with. So oh, millennial socialism? A, oh, no, no, before that. Uh, oh, Zizekian ideology critique. Uh, yeah. You might know, again, uh, Slava Zizek, the Slovenian philosopher, um, uh -huh. very influential, probably arguably the most influential political theorist uh, and philosophical influence on the left right now, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, I actually <laughs> quite like him, but I know many people who don't. Um, uh -huh. But his argument is that we need to return precisely to big meta-narratives. In fact, probably the biggest kind of meta-narratives you could imagine. Uh, and he's highly critical of postmodern theory, arguing that it kind of generated a sense of inaction uh, on the part of the left. Um, and uh -huh. we can get into why that is, but it's really detailed. Um, so we'd be here so, forever if you really wanted it elaborated. Um, so when you talk about these meta-narratives, let's get some examples. Do you mean things like the arc of history bends towards justice or society is building towards like the great perfect society or there are perfect society or like, like the ideal societies are achievable and we're getting better towards them? Like, or, or are there other kinds of meta-narratives that, that we want to sort of highlight in these critiques? Well, I, I think there are three that we can talk about uh, that most postmodern theorists uh, and aesthetic contributors took issue with. Uh, one meta narrative, uh, obviously, uh, was Christian religion, uh, right? And or mm -hmm. the meta narrative associated with Christian ontotheology, like uh, you so, do, yeah, sorry? like yeah, you and, do, yeah, yeah, exactly, right. And uh, I mean, in this respect, you know, postmodern theory was really not all that significantly different than uh, liberalism and liberal secularism, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Postmodern theorists often took issue with the claims uh, of Christian ontotheology, saying that the really comprehensive worldview that it offered uh, just wasn't sustainable any longer. And there are a lot of different reasons for this. Uh, most of them weren't particularly novel. Uh, the two more novel targets of postmodern theory uh, were liberalism and Marxism, which were both grand universalistic narratives uh, typically associated with historical progress. Uh, you know, so mm -hmm. the liberal meta-narrative was the idea that liberalism uh, was a universal way that society should be organized, uh, aligned with capitalist markets, of course. Uh, gradually, it was going to spread across the globe. It would bring freedom and rationality uh, and prosperity to all. Uh, and this was inevitable. Uh, we just needed to allow liberalism to take its time. Uh, and it would gradually mm -hmm. sweep across the globe. 
Uh, the other big narrative that people took issue with, particularly uh, commentators like Michel Foucault, uh, was Marxism, which, like liberalism, uh, is this grand meta-narrative of history, or at least was interpreted as a grand meta-narrative of history by many of these postmodern commentators, uh, where liberalism was just another stage, actually, in the historical story. It would eventually be overcome, uh, and we would reach, of course, a communist society uh, where class antagonisms were overcome. Everyone was able to develop all different sides of their nature and relative equality uh, with one another. Uh, and as Marx would put it, you know, we would hunt during the day, philosophize at night, and uh, you know, all these kind mm -hmm. of wonderful things uh, would occur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that didn't and come to pass. Um, the and, kingdom of ends would dawn. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and I think, again, uh, to some extent, you know, these postmodern criticisms of meta-narratives have a certain validity, right? I mean, we shouldn't be adopting what's sometimes called the teleological vision of history, uh, which sure. suggests that things are inexorably moving in one direction, and all we have to do is wait. Uh, and I think right. that this is true whether you're talking about liberalism uh, or you're talking about Marxism, right? Uh, yeah. What I think we need to do if you're going to be a consistent liberal or going to be a consistent Marxist uh, is recognize that we have certain choices available to us about what kind of society we want to create. Uh, and rather than saying, doesn't matter whether you want this or not, this is the way things are moving, we should be trying to persuade people to adopt our viewpoint by relying on strong arguments uh, and compelling political and rhetorical strategies. So would you say then that you... You don't buy into the narrative that all societies will necessarily trend towards Rawlsian liberalism slash socialism, um, but that you think that we should be actively trying to convert the world into those kinds of systems where possible? Absolutely, right? I mean, one of the philosophers that I rely on a great deal is a Brazilian theorist um, called Roberto Unger, who says that we need to mm -hmm. overcome or reject what he calls the false necessity, uh, that there's some kind of telos to history. Right? Uh, right. But what we need to do while we're trying to reject this false necessity is not abandon the idea that history should be moving in a certain direction. And this is really important, right? There's a difference between claiming history is moving in a certain direction and claiming history should move in a certain direction. I think history should move in the direction uh, of cosmopolitan liberal socialism, and I think there are very compelling arguments for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Will it do that? Well, I mean, that's up to us, really, and it's up to what people decide they want to achieve. I think I see this, um, and I try to show this in my intro to ethics course, there's a great example of this in the way that MLK is packaged uh, yeah. for modern audiences, where you get talk of the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. But if you read, like, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, he talks about the myth of time, where he says people get to this idea in their minds that things will just slowly get better if you just let them slowly get better, and that it doesn't actually work that way. And that really, the, re the, art, you know, the quote should be something like it'll only bend that way if you actually like pull on it really hard yeah and i think this is because uh mlk fundamentally uh was an optimist right in some ways mm -hmm. uh, and i mean that in the best possible sense right because he wasn't a naive optimist right uh mm -hmm. he's saying that if you put forward a emancipated and visionary image of the future people are good enough that they'll gradually start to align to it right uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's actually something we should commit ourselves to. Otherwise, why are we bothering uh, to try to reform society, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can just sit back and they are going to gradually move in this direction. Uh, you have to go out there, convince them. You have to agitate for social change. Uh, and sometimes, as MLK did, uh, you have to put yourself on the firing line in order to 
get the just society that everyone in the world mm-hmm. deserves. Right? Okay, so let me ask you, it seems like you, you are sympathetic at least to some of the projects of postmodernism. Are there specific thinkers who you find valuable who you would recommend versus specific thinkers that you would suggest people stay away from as not being sort of the, the best models of um, this way of uh, challenging these meta narratives and other concerns? Well, I, I don't really necessarily say that there are some thinkers that are better than others, even though I have those that I prefer. I say that we should take what's useful uh, in okay. each postmodern thinker, respectively, uh, and kind of chuck the rest. Uh, you know what I mean? Or chuck what's not particularly useful. Uh, so I'll just give a few examples, right? Yeah. Um, I, I tend to have a love-hate relationship with someone like Michel Foucault, right? Because I think that Michel Foucault's analyses of power are very interesting. Uh, I think his idea of an ethics of self-creation uh, are also quite fascinating. Uh, and there's a lot that one can learn from him historically, and also from that matter, um, aesthetically, since he was a talented writer, uh, unlike, I should say, many of the postmodern authors, right? Uh, saying that, uh, even sympathetic commentators towards Foucault um, have pointed out that there can be a bit of a nihilistic streak to his work, where sometimes power can seem mm-hmm. so totalizing and so overwhelming that's really difficult to see how you can resist it in any meaningful way. Uh, and then even if you can resist it, you're always in danger of reconstituting a new system of power that would be equally or even more oppressive, right? Uh, do you see this I kind of that, Nietzschean, Hobbesian? Like, what, where do you, what do you, what would you connect his sort of will to power views to? Well, Foucault himself uh, characterized himself as a Nietzschean, um, at least in the 1970s at some point. Uh, later on in his life, uh, he apparently um, switched more to being a bit of a Kantian. Uh, now, whether or not that's true or not, who knows? Uh, he was an open-minded guy, more than some other people are. Um, but mm-hmm. like I said, even people like Thomas Lemke, uh, who's a very sympathetic reader of Foucault, has mentioned that this kind of bleak mentality uh, is a bit of a downer, right? And it can, <laughs> at some cases, actually serve to inhibit a desire for emancipatory or progressive politics, because you kind of sit there thinking to yourself, what's the point, right? Um, and I think that's the side of Foucault, for example, that we should get rid of. Uh, I also think that some of his more strong convictions about epistemic skepticism, uh, we can also do without, uh, both for political and for philosophical reasons. Um, I think the same is true of someone like Jacques Derrida, right? I think that Derrida's work, for example, uh, on language uh, is quite interesting, right? I think the idea that in some senses, uh, we have to recognize that we, when we use a word uh, and we put forward a certain interpretation of what a word means, uh, there's, that's always, in certain senses, a choice that we're making uh, to put mm-hmm. forward this interpretation. And we're repressing all the other possible interpretations uh, <laughs> that might be available to this word, right? Or might be available when it comes to thinking about this term, right? Um, but when it comes to something like Derrida's politics, I've never really found anything that's all that useful in it, right? Uh, he seems mm-hmm. to almost delight in talking in these extremely abstract, highly paradoxical ways about how a democracy yet to come will emerge, but it won't be a democracy that's institutionalized. And I just don't really find all that stuff uh, either all that useful or, frankly, interesting. Uh, it seems to mm-hmm. kind of delight uh, in being willfully 
obscure, uh, and I just don't have a great deal of time for that. Um, so you would you would agree that obscurantism is a legitimate critique to raise against certain parts of um, the postmodern project? I think so, yeah. And I mean, this is something that I kind of present as a progressive, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because my feeling is that the people that you should be talking to aren't the kind of people who are going to be reading uh, your book and understanding what the hell you're talking about, right? Uh, now, I'm not sitting there and saying that there shouldn't be academic standards or that there's no place for writing dense monographs uh, that appeal mm-hmm. only to an academic audience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're going to be a progressive, you also have a responsibility to try to reach out to the public, convince them of the kind of changes that you think uh, should be achieved, uh, and to dialogue with them also, right? I think that's very important to understand what it is that they think, uh, we sh- the direction they think that we should be moving in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are points where I don't think that postmodern authors were successful at this at all, right? Uh, I mean, I defy anybody without a PhD uh, in two or three different disciplines uh, to read the loser Guattari's Thousand Plateaus uh, and explain what the hell it's about uh, or why it is that the future that is signpost uh, is a desirable one, right? Okay, fair enough. So let me then ask you, what do you see as the role of postmodernism in the world today? Do you see it as... Uh, you said it's it's uh, time has passed for the most part. Do you still see it as some do as a a major threat to Western culture, for example? I don't think it's a major threat to Western culture in its theoretical iteration. And this brings me back to the kind of dualistic um, distinction uh-huh. that I was talking about at the beginning, right? Postmodern theory um, kind of has earned a place uh, in history of if you want to call it Western philosophy or Western aesthetics. Um, I think that gradually, uh, what's happening is more or less what uh, some postmodern theorists like Richard Bordy predicted was going to happen. You know, you have a new generation of people who've come. Uh, they were weaned on postmodern theory, and they're trying to make their name precisely by overcoming its limitations and talking about different theoretical perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is why you have people like Alain Bajir, Slavoj Žižek, or Wendy Brown, or David Harvey, right, who are coming to the fore, all critics of postmodern theorizing. Uh, and many young people that I talk to are a lot more enamored with this uh, than they are with Derrida or Foucault or so on and so forth, uh, for a variety mm-hmm. of different reasons, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is also why I find somebody like Jordan Peterson sometimes a little bit outdated uh, in his discussions of the political left, right? He's kind of talking about the stuff that was going on. It was a huge deal when he was in grad school 20 years ago, right? Uh, right. It doesn't seem to recognize that things have changed uh, pretty substantially. Um, the second way that I understand postmodernism, though, is quite different, uh, and that's in terms of a cultural condition. Uh, and this is, again, uh, something that's been described by people like Wendy Brown, for example, who I think is probably uh, one of the best critical theorists working today, or, or Mark Fisher or David Harvey. Uh, and I don't think that we've overcome the limitations of postmodern culture at this point. I think that we're actually smack dab in the middle of it right now. Many of its tendencies are radicalizing. And this does pose a serious danger to us uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and we need to try to overcome and get past the limitations of this cultural condition uh, as quickly as possible. And what do you see those limitations to be? Is it just broadly speaking, like the nihilism with regard to meaning and like inability I, I to form healthy relationships and communities or? Well, I wouldn't even necessarily just say the nihilism with regard to meaning, right? I mean, that's a well-established feature of postmodern culture, right? The sense that uh, identity, communal attachments, all of these have been destabilized. And therefore, it's very hard to develop a sense of who you are and what you should commit yourself to under these conditions. Uh, But what I uh, actually think is the biggest problem with postmodern culture 
uh, is what Mark Fisher talked about in his book um, on, um, sorry, capitalist realism, uh, which is mm -hmm. the sense that we aren't really free to try to create a society or a culture that's better than a postmodern society. Uh, and one of the things that Fisher talks about in his book, Capitalist Realism, uh, is that many people have kind of taken on board internally the sense that Francis Fukuyama was right uh, in his famous essay, The End of History uh, and the Era of the Last Man, right? Uh, they mm -hmm. feel that the powers that be control everything. Uh, they've decided that this is the kind of society that we live in. Uh, we have certain amounts of freedom available to us to shape our own private lives the way that we want, uh, but we're under no conditions are we permitted to try to change the social or institutional structures that govern us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what's sometimes called civic or social freedom uh, is not meaningful in these kinds of contexts. Uh, and I think that this is a tremendous reason why people think uh, there's a lack of meaning in their life. And this notion that they aren't free uh, to remake their social world the way that they want uh, in a manner that would be more fair, more equitable, uh, and more in line with their interests. And I think that's precisely what we need to try to overcome in the condition of postmodernity. This notion that we aren't free to recreate the world. So in one sense, it is. it seems like true that these current critiques of postmodernism are... Uh, you know, rather than some new flare up in the culture war, just the passing of the torch of uh, concerns that go back to, you know, the 50s or whatever. And uh, at the same time, there is some some genuine cause for concern here in terms of um, what kind of lives are being made available to people, what the limits of flourishing are uh, for individuals within this system. So um, what then do you see as uh, a, a path forward in this? Like, I mean, maybe that's too, too broad and cruel a question to drop on you here, but I'm just curious if, uh, if, if you feel like there are any levers at hand that are particularly functional for shifting the tracks on this? Uh, I think that what we need to do is return to the, uh, like in some senses, to the efforts that were made in the 1950s and the 1980s um, to try to create a more radically egalitarian and democratic society. But we need to update this project uh, for the postmodern condition. So what I think we need to start doing is enabling people to have a more meaningful say in how they're governed at the national level. And I also think that we need to start democratizing various spheres of life uh, that too often have been seen as apolitical or depoliticized, particularly because that benefits the powers that be. Uh, and what I'm talking about, of course, would be something like the workplace, right? Uh, mm -hmm. For a lot of people, they spend eight, nine hours a day uh, working, right? Uh, and the sense that they have no control over that kind of environment is, of course, extremely alienating. Uh, so... We need to mm -hmm. take efforts to try to democratize those spaces. Uh, and I think here we can look at something like the feminist movement, uh, particularly in its second wave form, uh, as a precedent center, right? With this idea that we should also be trying to democratize the, something like the family, right? To ensure more egalitarian and participatory um, forms of organization for women, right? Uh, the mm -hmm. other thing that I think that we need to do as a path forward is recognize that the extreme inequalities that have been emerging uh, and getting worse since at least the 1980s, uh, have posed a serious barrier to a lot of people living meaningful, flourishing lives, uh, even in the old Aristotelian sense, right? right. Uh, in a lot of countries, real wages have stagnated or declined uh, for the past 40 years. We all know very well that job precarity has increased precipitously uh, in a wide variety of different fields uh, because of automation or because of globalization. 
Uh, this leads a lot of people to not even be sure what they're going to be doing year in and year out, or whether they're going to have the same kind of job that they trained for for years. Uh, and there are a number of different ways that we could go about trying to correct for these kinds of inequalities. Uh, I think that the way to do that uh, is actually tied to democratizing the workforce, right? Ensuring that labor gets more of a share uh, of the product of its work uh, than capital, uh, certainly a lot mm -hmm. more than it does now. Uh, I also think that there are other proposals that could be interesting, like, for instance, setting up something like a universal basic income. Uh, that's been proposed uh, in a number of different settings. Uh, and it's quite mm -hmm. possible, given that we're in the midst of a COVID crisis where a lot of people are out of work uh, and are receiving money from the government, that that idea could get significant traction. Uh, I think Podemos in Spain uh, actually has put forward the idea that it might just institute a UBI uh, in reaction to the crisis, uh, since Spain was right. particularly hardly, hard hit uh, by this. Um, right. But but better to do it that way than through unemployment, right? Yeah, and the, but the thing is, of course, there's going to be a reaction to this, right? Uh, and there was mm -hmm. a very interesting Wall Street Journal uh, article uh, early in, in mid-May uh, where they said the biggest concern uh, that they had is that if the people start to receive money from the government uh, and they start to enjoy mm -hmm. certain benefits that weren't available to them before, they won't want them to leave, right? They're not going to let them go. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal obviously thought that this was a serious problem, right? And it's one of the reasons they said people need to go back to work uh, because mm -hmm. if they start getting used to getting checks from the government, uh, then they're not going to want to give that up, right? Uh, right? And I think we should react very strongly against that kind of mentality and say, no, you know, it's time to actually take major action on rectifying inequality. Uh, there's an opportunity to do now, so now in the midst of this crisis, which has exposed many of the failures of the previous system. Uh, and we should take that opportunity, not try to brush past it, to go back to a status quo that wasn't working for the vast majority of people. I mean, yeah, I think we should be, I mean, I think we should be totally honest and be like, there are absolutely people who are looking at their stimulus enhanced uh, unemployment checks that are several hundred dollars more a week than they were making full time at their current job. And like, yeah, that's a perverse incentive. And the answer there is is not to like, um, you know, force them back to work in an unhealthy environment. The answer is when they are brought back to work, they got to be brought back at more functional wages so that like there is some genuine incentive for people to go back to work. Absolutely. And I mean, there are a number of ways that you could try to achieve this, right? Uh, one of them is through state action, uh, which mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a lot more of, right? Efforts to try to increase the minimum wage. But I think what we also need to uh, see again is a serious effort to try to democratize the workplace. Uh, because the mm -hmm. problem is state action is always pretty fickle, right? It's dependent on what party happens to be in power. Uh, and right. particularly in countries like the United States where wealthy people have tremendous capacity to influence both parties. Uh, you know, you're going to see any effort to try to enhance wages from the state down uh, retracted very quickly uh, once things mm -hmm. calm down a little bit. If you democratize the workplace uh, and give workers more of a say uh, in how things are governed and you set up solid institutions uh, that are hard to break down, then it's a lot more difficult uh, to claw back uh, the benefits that working and middle uh -huh. class people can achieve, right? Uh, and I think this is what you saw during the 1950s and the 1960s, right? The fact that unions uh, were really popular then made sure that more people had access to living wages uh, that were useful, or sorry, that mm -hmm. were helpful to them to when it came to living flourishing lives, right? Uh, it's no coincidence that one of the things people like Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher tried to do was smash unions, uh, since they were a powerful and institutionally uh, 
important yeah. barrier uh, to them trying to get money back into the hands of the people they thought deserved it more, which were of course. people who already had a lot of money, right? Right, of course. Now we need to do it in a version of that where it's not super racist at the same time. But yes, that, um, that, that, that would be nice, wouldn't it? That would be an improvement. Um, but like generally speaking, it sounds like you know. I think what you're laying out is a fairly plausible left wing post postmodernism where you know we we do reassert some large scale value judgments and in doing so try to remotivate some large scale social progress, even if it has to occur um, somewhat incrementally. So for the the back half here, I want to ask about your discussion of right-wing postmodernism. This is something that I've seen you talk about in a couple of formats. Um, and I'm curious what what is right wing postmodernism? I know you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but if you want to just restate what it is, and why is that label particularly useful for understanding those particular pieces of of um, phil- philosophical work? Well, I should say that I think actually there are a number of conservatives who are actually buying into this thesis. Right, uh, just the other day uh, okay. I saw I think it was David Frum. Uh, who characterized Donald Trump enga- as engaging in postmodern flailing uh, when it came to things like this whole Obamagate uh, accusation, right? Which is yet another unsubstantiated allegation he's making against his predecessor to try to distract uh, from the crises that are surrounding him, right? Um, right. But more to the point, right? Uh, what I talk about is that postmodern conservatism is the kind of reactionary politics you would expect to see uh, in a postmodern cultural condition. Uh, it's really quite a simple idea, right? We live in a postmodern cultural condition. Uh, there are left-wing iterations of postmodern politics, uh, some of which I think have actually had a tremendous and useful impact on society. Uh, and now we're seeing right-wing iterations of postmodern politics. Uh, and they share a lot of structural affinities uh, with left-wing iterations of postmodern politics. Uh, but of course, they're different since their objectives and goals uh, are different. Mm-hmm. Can you give a couple of like clear-cut examples you think of individuals who you, you think are doing post right-wing postmodern um, political work? Sure. I mean, uh, the people that I usually point to are politicians. Um, they're more well-known uh, than, for instance, you know, some obscure theorists that I could also point to if you wanted to. Uh, but I usually talk about people like Donald Trump uh, and his associates. I talk about people like Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Matteo Salvini uh, in uh, Italy. Uh, and I'm tempted sometimes to lump uh, Moody in India and Jair Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil uh, into the category of people that I'm talking about. Uh, but since I'm not an expert in any way, shape or form on Brazilian or Indian politics, uh, and both of them are vastly complicated because they're rich countries that are huge uh, with long, complex histories, um, I'm kind of hesitant to do that. But maybe in the future I will. Uh, and what unites all of these figures uh, is this conviction that the world, or at least their supporters feel that the world is becoming increasingly unstable. uh, And the responsibility for this instability lies with liberal rationalism and liberal universalism. uh, And what we need is return to a more traditional kind of identity uh, and traditional kinds of authority uh, that aren't gonna be based in any kind of rational justificatory system. They're gonna be based on faith uh, and on a conviction that we need to hold to these truths uh, in order to restabilize our sense of the world against the onslaught uh, of liberal and progressive attacks. So, so why is that postmodernism and not just good old-fashioned conservative fascism? 
Well, I think that there's actually a certain degree uh, of elective affinity between the two. And this is one of the things that I point out in my book. Uh, there are various strands of conservative thinking uh, and praxis that were very amenable to mutation under uh, the conditions of postmodernity. Uh, and I point out people like Edmund Burke, Joseph DeMache, Robert Bork, um, you know, Lord Patrick Delvin, uh, mm -hmm. Michael Oakeshott. All of these figures claimed uh, in a way that you know was very consonant, uh, I should say, uh, with people like Michel Foucault, uh, that liberal rationalism or the meta narratives associated with liberal rationalism and universalism uh, were dangerous. Uh, they undermined faith and tradition. They broke down important social structures uh, because they opened them up to criticism. Uh, and all of these kinds of figures employed a strategic skepticism towards uh, liberal rationalism and universalism, using kind of every intellectual tool in the book to undermine his claims, uh, while at the same time being very dogmatic, uh, or to a lesser extent, you know, sometimes not as dogmatic when it came to people like Burke. Um, mm -hmm. But when it came to the traditions and religious values in particular that they thought were important, right? Uh, what I say is different about postmodern conservatism today uh, is all of these earlier conservatives um, tended to actually believe that these traditions and structures uh, and values that they were talking about actually were ex existed and were widely mm -hmm. held by most people. Right. Uh, okay. what, they were object they were objectivists about the actual values that they were yeah, talking exactly, about. Right. They'd say, you know, our society actually believes this. Uh, and the problem is all these liberals and progressives are coming in here trying to undermine uh, what the man on the Clapham omnibus or the ordinary man uh, knows to be true. Right. Um, Postmodern conservatives, by contrast, grew up in a context where there was no such sense of unanimity uh, about what the traditions and values of our society was. Uh, mm -hmm. And so what they've had to do essentially is look to the past uh, to try to reconstruct the sense uh, of what an ordered uh, authority driven society would look like. Uh, and this is true um, both at the political level and it's also true of their identities, right? Uh, a lot of these postmodern conservatives look to the archive of the past or the museum of the past as it's sometimes called, uh, and they pick out uh, different strands uh, of selfhood. Uh, that they then assemble into what David Hart, uh, sorry, uh, Frederick Jameson would call a pastiche-like identity uh, that doesn't really hold together with a lot of authenticity, <laughs> but provides them with a sense uh, of stability and a world that they feel is increasingly unmoored. Okay, so I, I think I, I, so I get what I get what you're saying. I guess my my confusion about the phrasing a little bit is that like, so so. Really, what we're what they're emphasizing is the post, the the sort of naked will to power part of the postmodernism. The like, if you take seriously that it's that it's all just kind of a language game competition, and whoever can assert their language with enough force and power gets to win and, and create the culture. I can certainly buy that. There's there's some of that going on. I, I get a little antsy. I think about. Um, applying it to folks like Trump because I think it's maybe descriptively true of of Trump in some very like broad way, but like in no sense is he I think consciously. I mean, like I don't know. Maybe I guess you would you could put it that that way that he is like consciously controlling uh, everyone by acknowledging the fact that there is only a naked conflict between narratives. Oh, absolutely, and I should say. A lot of this is done unconsciously, right? Um, mm -hmm. There are a number of people I know who actually, oddly enough, uh, identify as reactionaries who have agreed with me that this is what they're doing. 
uh, and they have a kind of level mm -hmm. of self-consciousness about it, right? Uh, but one of the things that people need to understand about conservatism uh, generally uh, is, as Russell Kirk uh, put it, conservatism is a disposition uh, more mm -hmm. than it's an ideology or a philosophy. It's an attitude people take towards the world, right? Uh, and like most attitudinal outlooks, right, uh, conservatives don't necessarily even need to be reflective about what they're doing um, because they kind of understand it instinctively, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or they engage with the world instinctively, right? Uh, and so... A lot of people who I claim are postmodern conservatives uh, were driven by this attitudinal sense that the world is falling apart around them, uh, that they're angry about it, this sense that it must to some extent be the responsibility of liberals and progressives since they always seem to be undermining cherished or established value systems. Uh, and then they construct this narrative sense of their identity, uh, this pastiche uh, from right. this kind of inclination. Uh, and I don't think, as you pointed out, that Trump was very self-conscious about these processes, right? I think what he understood is that people are angry, uh, that there are ideal targets out there. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you just rile people up with using this sense of anger uh, and target the right people, you can use that to mobilize uh, them uh, and eventually move into the White House, right? Uh, mm -hmm. On the back of all this kind of outrage. Um, where I do think that post, uh, where Trump and uh, Trumpism embodies the postmodern ethos is the other element of postmodern conservatism that I always talk about uh, that's related to earlier iterations of conservatism, but far more radicalized, uh, which is this strategic skepticism, right? Mm. Uh, conservatives would also often, again, like I said, uh, be very skeptical about the claims of universalistic rationalism uh, while being far more willing to accept eminently more contentious claims, for instance, about the existence of God and religious structures, if that was necessary to preserve their sense of the world, right? Uh -huh. uh, uh -huh. And you see this embodied in a much more radical form via Trumpism, right? Uh, you think about somebody like Kellyanne Conway, right? When confronted right. with the fact that empirically speaking, uh, what the president said was wrong, she would say things like, well, they had their facts and we have our alternative facts, right? Yeah. Uh, or Rudy Giuliani, right? When confronted with the fact that the president probably committed, God only knows how many illegalities, what did he say? Uh, truth is sometimes not truth. Right. Right. This, uh, this is what Stephen Colbert truth called truthiness. Right. This is the the yeah. ability to to feel truthiness from the gut rather than from the brain. Exactly. Right. And this is related back to this dispositional um, element uh, that you know characterizes a lot of conservatism. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Except it's much more radicalized than what you saw before. Right. Uh, people like Edmund Burke were always at least all willing to offer an olive branch uh, to liberal rationalism uh, for uh -huh. a variety of different reasons that we could talk about. You don't see any of that uh, with somebody like Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani uh, or Victor Orban, right? Um, it's, it's, we, it's, it's, sorry, I just have to point out that it's so funny that like in the, tra in the traditional period, um, you know, a lot of empiricism went hand in hand with conservatism because like as soon as you start to study the human condition, you realize that we're nasty and brutish and such. Um, whereas like the liberals were very much more in that, um, rationalist idealist kind of mindset and then as science inevitably turned against the conservative historical and religious and cultural narratives um, that that sort of split off from what we would think of as modern conservatism yeah absolutely I, and uh, I think this is well articulated by somebody like Yoram um, Hazoni right uh, author mm -hmm. of the virtual, like uh, the virtue of nationalism right uh, Hazoni is a smart guy, uh, and what he argues for is that conservatives need to abandon uh, rationalism, as he calls it, 
that embrace instead what he calls historical imperial empiricism, uh, which is the idea that we don't interrogate traditions or ways of looking at the world that seem to quote unquote work uh, for different communities and different nations. Um, because that opens so us just, up to breaking down uh, under the just cultural relativism with more steps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things that I wrote about in uh, an article for Ario, uh, right? Which is that uh-huh. uh, if you were to talk about or describe somebody like Michel Foucault uh, as historical empiricist, uh, I think he would probably actually agree with you in some senses. And it's just very surprising uh, that you'd see somebody like Yoram Hazoni uh, jumping onto this and saying, yes, you know, uh, we shouldn't be questioning what our nations actually believe because it seems to have worked well enough for us for a long enough period of time. Uh, and rationalism poses a danger because it just gets people to think too much about whether or not what our traditions say or hold to is true. Right? Uh-huh. So what would you say, uh, is there anything in the positive column for you for right-wing postmodernism? Like, do you feel like there's stuff that they're getting right i mean beyond like the way where they are agreeing with the traditional postmodern diagnoses or agreeing with um you know earlier critiques of uh what, what the postmodern world has ended up in do you feel like in their diagnosis or treatment they are bringing anything valuable to the table yeah i mean i think that in uh some of the more reflective iterations of postmodern conservatism you can actually see real insight, right? Uh, particularly real psychological insight about this need for meaning uh, and a world that seems increasingly devoid of meaning, right? Uh, and I will say that I think that many leftists have really not been very attentive to this uh, for quite some time, right? This is probably mm-hmm. why somebody like Jordan Peterson, for example, has a lot of appeal uh, because mm-hmm. leftists tend to talk a lot about economic interests uh, or forms of prejudice, right? Uh, And all of these things are extremely valid, right? There are manifold numbers of prejudices and systems of marginalization in our society. Economic inequality is a major problem that needs to be rectified, uh, as I've already talked about at some length, right? Uh, But Mm -hmm. people also need a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives, right? Uh, And what we need to do as progressives is provide a sense of meaning. Uh, Otherwise, people are going to turn to things like postmodern conservatism as an answer. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's a good answer. Right. But at least it's an answer. So you mentioned Peterson there and uh, you wrote you wrote a book on Peterson. And I'm curious, first of all, would you classify Peterson as a right wing postmodernist? I mean, given his views on truth, as he sort of managed to halfway lay them out to like Sam Harris, for example, I think someone might make a case that he has postmodernist tendencies. Is that seem like a fair or accurate or useful characterization? Well, I- I've often said that he's not a uh postmodern conservatives. And that, the reason I is because I think he's more comfortable being described as a neo-modernist uh, in the vein, or a neo-modernist uh, right-wing critic, right? In the vein of somebody like um, Carl Jung, Martin Heidegger, um, or even Friedrich Nietzsche uh, and yeah. a lot of different- You always want to be in Heidegger's vein. That's a good vein to- Well, to I mean, we can talk about that, right? Uh, no, I know. It's fine. I'm just you know, cheap shots. I mean, uh, well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I criticize him for is Peterson is very, very willing to say that Marx, uh, who died 40 years before Lenin, you know, ever started his revolution, uh, is to blame uh, for the totalitarian movements uh, that, you know, enacted mass slaughter in his name. Uh, but he's mm-hmm. much more forgiving of somebody like Martin Heidegger, who actually did support an actual totalitarian movement while he was alive, um, and even you know, to <laughs> praise him in the introduction to his book. So a little bit yeah. of attention there. Um, a little bit. Yeah. But, um, and, you know, this is true across the board with a lot of the different figures that he talks about. Uh, but 
all that aside, right? Um, I think that you know uh, Peterson you know, is a interesting figure uh, in a lot of ways, which is why I wrote the book. Uh, and certainly, the weird thing is he doesn't seem to have a very firm grasp of the genealogy of postmodern theory. Uh, and hmm. if he did have a good grasp of it, he probably recognized that he has a lot more in common with some of these figures uh, than he lets on. Like I said, you know, Peterson is a big fan of somebody like Friedrich Nietzsche. Michel Foucault described himself uh, at various points as a Nietzschean, right? Uh, and this wasn't an unreflective or stupid thing to say because there are a lot of parallels between Nietzsche's work, particularly on power uh, and the basis of morality and Nietzsche's, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Heidegger was a tremendous influence on somebody like Jacques Derrida. Um, and he, of course, he's a tremendous influence on somebody like Peterson, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The pragmatist tradition that Peterson sometimes aligns himself with, uh, not very reflectively, I should say, well, uh, its most significant proponent in the late 20th century was Richard Rorty, uh, who's sometimes characterized as American postmodernist, uh, and at various points actually embraced the label, since he also thought that right. what he was doing was very much aligned with what Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida uh, and others were doing, right? Uh, and it's not that That's you particularly be interesting to... because, yeah, I mean, I just want to jump in there just because I think um, it's often felt to me in the the cluster concept game of trying to pin down what postmodernism is that like sometimes what postmodernism appears to be is just like a pr- more pragmatic approach to understanding what truth is and like talking about truth in terms of utility rather than in terms of, you know, uh, picking out the correct platonic forms out there in the world or something. Yeah, and this is exactly what Rorty argued uh, pragmatism is all about and how he understood postmodernism as well, right? Uh, in Rorty's pragmatic interpretation, right, uh, and he's not alone in this, there are a number of pragmatist theorists uh, who put forward this thesis. Uh, Stanley Fish is probably another example. Uh, you know, all postmodernity mm-hmm. alerts you to is the idea that truth claims are human creations, right? Uh, and we advance truth claims because. We want to get something out of the world, putting it really simply, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and rather than trying to dignify them as you put it out with this kind of platonic uh, significance, right? That we're talking about some divine feature of existence and reality that goes beyond human interests. We should recognize, you know, the very human quality uh, of trying to assess truth, right? Um, mm-hmm. And understand it in terms of use uh, rather than divinity or whatever it happens to be, right? Um and again, it's not that you couldn't give a non-postmodern interpretation of something like pragmatism uh, or a non-postmodern interpretation of somebody like Nietzsche or Heidegger either, right? Uh, right. That Peterson never really acknowledges a lot of these ambiguities in his work, uh, particularly when he's talking about postmodernity, which is a real shame because uh, he can be a very interesting, competent scholar when he tries. Uh, so the only answer I have for why he didn't bother to do this is he just really has no interest in it, right? Um, Right, uh, allergic to curiosity on that particular front or something. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's like, well, I'm allergic do to... You, I'm not really particularly interested in a lot of things, but then I don't go commenting about them, right? Uh, do, you, do you feel like com- that's a common, common problem? I mean, I'm yeah, just curious if you feel like... Like, yeah, especially amongst the critics of postmodernism, is there, like... It feels like a lack of expertise with regard to actually analyzing what this is uh, as a thing. Yeah, I absolutely do think it's a major problem, right? I mean... um, I've read a lot of these books by uh, right-wing critics of postmodernity. Uh, Jordan Peterson and Stephen Hicks are probably the most prominent, but you can also think about somebody like uh, Ben Shapiro. And uh, I actually ordered Dave Rubin's book today, so 
Well, here isn't, we um, Pluck, isn't Helen Pluckrose putting out another book about postmodernism as well? Yes, I, I haven't read that one yet, um, but um, I'm sure I'll get to it when it comes out. But um, you know, most of the times, these things are pretty bad, right? Uh, I mean, the quality is low, uh, sometimes shockingly low. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about these books not being um, you know, written in an academic style or mm-hmm. even you know that they don't use proper footnotes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it just becomes really obvious once you go through them. Uh, that the people don't really know a lot of what they're talking about, right? Uh, they haven't mm-hmm. engaged with this literature very extensively. Uh, they have no curiosity to do so. And a lot of it seems animated more uh, by a desire to sell books to the already converted than actually try and convince people that there's something seriously wrong uh, with this theoretical perspective, right? Uh, and the thing is, it doesn't have to be this way, right? There are actual very competent uh, critics of postmodernity out there who've done their homework and who raise... Mm-hmm. serious uh, accusations against it, right? Uh, ironically enough, one person who I think actually does fall into this vein uh, is Sokol, right? The original uh, mm-hmm. you know, hoaxer. Uh, if you read the, the book that he wrote about postmodernity after the whole Sokol Square uh, hoax came out, um, he makes a very narrow claim, which is that many postmodern theorists uh, have misunderstood or badly used scientific terminology. Right? It's a pretty narrow mm-hmm. claim, actually, right? Uh, and he read hundreds uh, of essays of books <laughs> by various postmodern theorists. And when he goes through and talks about why it is that they don't really understand this or that mathematical or scientific concept, uh, you kind of nod your head and you think, well, he seems to be right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a quantum theorist, but he is a quantum theorist. And the way that he's describing it, this, there does seem to be a bit of a misuse uh, of some of this terminology. Uh, and not even, you know, a reinterpretation, but just a misunderstanding that's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so oftentimes what I wish is that these critics of postmodernity would take inspiration from these kinds of works, actually do their homework, and try to seriously present an argument for why some of this stuff is bad or flawed in this or that way, rather than putting forward these brand, grand panoramic claims uh, that fall apart under the barest scrutiny. So do you not find the, the grievance studies hoax to be a... Uh, sufficient uh, expose on the creeping problem of postmodernism in certain um, parts of academia. Um, how do you how do you look at that as as something that is oft cited um, when people ask for evidence of this problem? Well, I, I should say again, uh, the only two members that I actually interact with uh, on a regular basis are Ioni Italia uh, and Helen Pluckers. And full disclosure, right, I write for Ariel. Uh, and I'm now a reviewer for Ariel Magazine. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I just want to be overt about that. Um, yeah, fair enough. And I, I, I think for her sake, Iona would, would mention, I, think was, I don't think she was actually directly involved with the grievance studies stuff, though she is involved with Arrow. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. Uh, you know, personally, you know, um, I have my problems with post-modern, postmodern theorizing. Uh, I think it sometimes can be silly. I sometimes think it can be very insightful. So I have a more positive appraisal uh, of it than... A lot of the grievance studies people do while still thinking that we need to be critical uh, and ultimately, like I said, uh, move past it. Right? It's kind of time is come and gone. Uh, I don't think that I would actually have done what they did. Uh, I would probably do something more like what Helen is doing actually right now. And I'll, I'll praise her for that. Right. You know, writing a book, mm-hmm. sitting there saying these are the problems I have with it. Uh, this is where I think this author goes wrong. Uh, here's this study where I think that they misinterpret this. Uh, and because I think that's ultimately a way that you're going to convince 
more people uh, in the mm-hmm. long run, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're going to, you know, you're if you can actually sit down and explain to someone using terminology that they would understand uh, why they're wrong and do it in a sympathetic way, uh, while mm-hmm. at the same time being critical, uh, they're much more open to changing their minds, uh, I find, than if you use other tactics. Um, yeah. so that's my kind of take on that one. Given that very few tactics have a high success rate, I agree that that is amongst the better options. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. there's no guarantee of success, 100%. Sure, of right? course, right. Uh, I um, mean, just look online right now, right? You can spend hours sitting there patiently trying to explain to somebody uh, where their argument is wrong, empirically, coherently, you know, using every standard under the book. Uh, and at the end of it, they can still just say, well, it's not what I want to believe, right? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do what- at that point, what do you think about the risks that people often correlate? They say one of the biggest concerns about postmodernism is that it leads to um, attacks on free speech or an undermining of free speech or maybe an undermining of the meaningfulness of speech. If you look at someone like Trump, right, his damage to speech comes from the way that he um, just patently refuses to play the language game properly. Yeah, I mean, I agree with people like Ben Burgess, um, or Nathan Robinson, right? That there are certain strands of leftism out there uh, that have a problem with this, right? Uh, they tend to see discourse as primarily a game of power. Um, ContraPoints actually made a very good bo- uh, video about this also recently uh, with their stuff about canceling, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And so the point uh, in a discourse isn't to actually try to convince or change people's minds, uh, it's to try to dominate the conversation and silence those who disagree, right? Uh, and I ultimately don't think that that's an effective way of uh, winning hearts and minds, right? Um, and I've seen this a lot actually by moving in right-wing circles where a lot of the people I have encountered said that they were converted to conservatism uh, in part because they felt that leftists just didn't want them to know anything about it, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They tried to obscure this information to prevent people from getting access to it. Uh, and like anyone, if you encounter people who do that, you're obviously going to be immediately attracted to those who oppose them, right? Um, so I agree with somebody like, say, um, Ben Burgess or Contra, uh, that what we need is a more engaged, funny, uh, dialogical, and argumentative left. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Uh, and I do ultimately think a lot of this stuff has been overstated, right? Um, you know, right-wing media just delights in taking every kind of instance of college activism uh, and magnifying it into this grand social problem uh, where, you know, apparently the Western world is going to collapse uh, because five college kids uh, at an elite mm-hmm. school in the United States uh, say they want to read... Uh, rather than Shakespeare, right? Um, but it is a problem and it's something that people need to address, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes to what's going on with postmodern conservatism, I think its tactics are actually a little bit different uh, than what you see uh, when it comes to something like free speech and in the long run actually pose a bigger threat. Um, Donald Trump, what he does, uh, isn't actually try to silence opponents. What he tries to do is suggest that the whole notion that there's a right or a wrong or a true or a false uh, is for suckers, right? Right. Uh, and this was very nicely articulated um, in a great book called, by Harry Frankfurt called On Bullshit. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Oh, yes. No, I have. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic book. I mean, Frankfurt is a serious philosopher, and he mm-hmm. takes bullshit seriously, and, and in a way that's provocative, right, in the way you wouldn't have thought of before. Because uh, one of the things he says is that we need to recognize that there's a difference between a liar and a bullshitter. Right? A liar, uh, somebody like Richard Nixon, right, knows that there's a, tr- uh, a truth or a false, a true or false, uh, right or wrong, right? Uh, and what he or she tries to do is obscure 
the true and the right uh, in order to propagate the false, right? Right. This uh, is more like radical sophistry, right? This is the traditional sophist contrast to someone like Socrates, where Socrates thinks that there are, are true true facts we can find out about justice, and the Socratics are like, or, or the sophists are just like, no, it's just whoever can win the argument is what justice is. Yeah, exactly, right? And this is one of the things that uh, Frankfurt, points Frankfurt makes about bullshit, right? Bullshitters do not care what's right or wrong, what's true or false, right? Uh, they think that what matters ultimately is getting what you want. Uh, and what you need to get what you want, of course, as you pointed out, is power, right? Which is something right. that's well understood. Uh, and so use whatever rhetorical strategy you can in order to get what you want uh, and remake reality if you need uh, in order to achieve your objectives. Uh, and Trump embodies this bullshitter mentality to a T. Uh, you can even read about him mm -hmm. and uh, his own philosophy on it in The Art of the Deal. I mean, he didn't write it. Um, but, right, but it's there. <laughs> uh, he talks a lot what? about uh, this idea, for instance, of truthful hyperbole, uh, right? Which mm -hmm. is that people get excited when you make reality uh, and you make the reality about yourself out to be more than it actually is. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with doing this, right? Uh, and you see this in his rhetoric all the time. Uh, but the consequence of this politically is that people start to think, well, the president doesn't believe that what's right or wrong or true or false matters. Uh, so I don't care either, right? What I care about mm -hmm. is what vindicates my worldview, uh, what seems consistent with my value system. Uh, and if people prove me wrong, that must be because they have some kind of agenda uh, or they're just trying to win some kind of power struggle in the culture war. Uh, so I'm just going to dismiss what they have to say. Uh, and in those kinds of contexts, how do you actually convince people to change their mind? Right? Uh, mm -hmm. It's really, really difficult. And it's not impossible, right. right? And so I think this is a much bigger threat to free speech today. Uh, not, you know, people trying to silence others, but people trying to say, in a very nihilistic sense, right? Truth or falsity, right or wrong, don't matter. Uh, just believe what you want to believe. Uh, and more importantly, of course, believe me, uh, since I speak for you uh, and others right. like you, uh, and all of them don't. Yeah, I mean, nihilism just pairs don't. very beautifully with um, narcissistic personality disorder, and it's just what what you're what you're saying is that he can then infect the world with his narcissism, and I think that that's an unfortunate truth that we're going to spend a lot of time trying to claw our way back from. Yeah, I mean, if we can claw our way back from, right? Uh, if, we our, can, if we can, if we can. Cynical moments, it's kind of like it's that the damage is pretty serious, right? <laughs> you know, the patient is yeah. on my support, and we really need uh, some serious medication to wean ourselves. Uh, and we haven't even stopped the bleeding. Yeah, no, it's bad. It's very bad. Um, so I realize we're way out of time, unfortunately. Um, but this has been great. And we'll get you back on to talk about uh, some more of these uh, issues down the line. And we can see how um, his uh, right-wing real politic postmodernism plays out in this election amidst the pandemic and all of that. Um, but I need to get you into uh, the torture chamber for the enlightening round. Sure um, so for folks who aren't familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Okay. Those are your options. Uh, you can't hedge. You don't get to define what real means. So <laughs> you can feel free to hedge later. Um, do you feel like you understand what's going on here? Sure. Okay. So let me just check and make sure. Is anything real? Yes. Okay, so let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay, are colors real? No. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Yes. Free will? Can I say 50-50 or is that a hedge? Nope, you cannot. 
In a metaphysical sense, no. Uh, yeah, that's all. It's yes or no answers. No, I'll just say no. <laughs> no. Okay. Selves or persons? Yes. Okay. Genders? Do you mean sex, gender? Uh, no, I mean genders, genders. Uh, I'll say no. Okay. Races? No. Species? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, uh, I'll say yes. I'll say yes. On okay. Morality? Yes. Rights? Yes. Knowledge? Yes. God or gods? Uh, I'm going to say yes in a certain uh, in a certain sense. Okay, society. Uh, yes. Numbers. Yes. Fictional characters. Oh, that's a good one. Um. No. No. Holes, as in a hole in the ground. <laughs> uh oh, that's a good one. Uh. No. Chairs. Yes. <laughs> Sandwiches. Yes. Science. Yes. Natural laws. No. Beauty. Ooh, that's another good one. That's another good one. It's uh, <laughs> uh, a whole list of good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm in a good mood, so I'm going to say yes. Okay. Causality. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say a qualified yes. Okay. And finally, dharmas. Dharmas? Uh, no, but I wish it was. You know, we'd be living okay. in the best world if it was. Okay. You survived. How do you feel? I feel a little bit shaken, to be honest with you, because I'm kind of like, <laughs> pretty well, you know. Yeah, uh, no, it gets real hard real fast for some reason, the, the curve. Yeah. <laughs> the whole one is interesting, too. I was kind of like, well, you know, there's a lot of you know epistemic semantic problems that are going on there, right? Uh, yep. Yep, it's a big problem, yeah. big pile of problems. Um, well, thanks, Matt. This has been a really fun chat. Um, I think it was useful in our continuing um, shows, discussions of postmodernism and the culture wars. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. Yeah, thank you very much. I had a good time also. And uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to us chatting again. Uh, if you ever want me to come yeah. back, let me know. Yeah, and where can folks find you in the meantime? Uh, yeah, so you can email me uh, at mattmcmanus300 at gmail.com. Uh, or you can add me uh, via at Matt Paul Prof on Twitter. Um, and yeah, just send me a message. Uh, I try to get back to people as often as I can. Uh, just yeah, polite messages, you know. Okay. And you said you write on Arrow. Is there anywhere else? Uh, yeah, I write uh, for Aereo, uh, Marianne West, uh, and then occasionally for Arc Digital. Um, but you can also check out my new books, uh, Myth and Mayhem, and Myth, uh, Leftist Critique of Jordan Peterson. That came out with uh, my co-authors, Conrad Hamilton, Ben Burgess, Marion Trejo, and Slavo Zizek. Uh, so I should say full disclosure, uh, he contributed <laughs> to our book. Uh, and then uh, I have a new book coming out also, uh, Liberalism and Liberal Rights, 
a critical legal argument that will be with Palgrave McMillan later this year. People can look at that too. Okay, oh, maybe we can get you back on and chat about that. Sounds good. All right, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Have a good one. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. I'd like to thank some new patrons and some returning patrons. Thanks to Osmium, Lost Remote Control, Theo, Fweth, Full Name, Stephen McKendry, and we're still getting paid, so making sure you are too. That's a really touching sentiment. Um, thanks also to Jonathan Yance Jones for increasing his pledge. Um, and as always, I must thank our top patrons at the $20 tier level. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Not everyone, not, oh, sorry, now everyone knows about Camp Quest. Check out blacknonbelievers.com. Strong suggestion. Uh, Chad T. Brenda Goodman and Jesse Urbinowitz. And at our top tier evil cult leader levels, we've got our longtime friend Dave Maslich. And our mystery patron has revealed himself to be the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. So I imagine he's riddled with phlebitis, and we're happy to have him here. Uh, Thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you use, though especially iTunes helps a lot. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content, which I promise is returning now that I've finished moving. Um, And most importantly, in these trying times especially, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 